0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. And we're so excited that tonight is the very first of our small group meetings. Some of you meet later on in the week, maybe. But uh, if, tonight is the official start time. So we're excited about getting together with our people. We're going uh, on in our study of the book of Esther. And we began by telling you about King Xerxes. King Xerxes was the king of Persia, which is now modern-day Iran. At that time, you can see the, the far-reaching effect and influence of the Persian Empire. It goes up to the borders of Greece. It extends down into Libya and Egypt as far as the borders of India and then up to the north. And you can see that uh, this was quite the massive uh, empire. King Xerxes wants to attack Greece. He wants to, he wants to get in there and take it over. They uh, were held back if you remember the story of the 300 Spartans, they were held back, uh, and, and you may recognize that, but they were held back by the by the Greeks, and uh, King Xerxes is now ready to go back and to attack them again, and this time he's, he's really believing that he is going to overcome it. So Esther, chapter 1, deals with this uh, meeting between King Xerxes and all his officials, his generals, his, all his military people. And for 180 days, they're, they're discussing what they're going to do and how they're going to get the job done. They, uh, the Bible says that he's showing off the, the, his wealth, his, his amazing wealth. Uh, many scholars believe that, in fact, it's not just his wealth, but it's, it's a military display. He's showing off what he's capable of and what he'd like to do. Now, at the end of that 180 days of meeting to discuss how they're going to subdue Greece, he has a seven-day feast. And at the seven-day feast, everybody's getting drunk, and they're having a ball. They're eating, drinking, and one night, while King Xerxes is in high spirits, he decides, uh, man, you know what? I I don't want to just show off all my weapons and my, my wealth. I'd like to show off my queen. And so he gets his servants to summon his queen, Queen Vashti, and says, tell her to come to us so I can show everybody what a beautiful wife that I have. A few minutes later, the servant comes back and says, "Uh, it's not going to happen. She's not coming. She doesn't want to do that. She's not going to stand before all these drunk generals and officials, and she's definitely not going to put herself on display. Well, the king is livid and he doesn't know what to do with himself. You just imagine him cursing and beat red from from fury. And then finally, he asks the wise people, the wise men around him, and says, Well, what do you think I should do? How should I deal with this? And the wise men say, Hey, well, you got to dump this woman. You got to get rid of her. I mean, if word gets out to the empire that a woman is stood up to her husband. I mean, a woman's liberation movement is going to break out, and we cannot have that. It's going to throw the whole empire into confusion. So the king listens to his wise men and decides that maybe they've got something, and so he decides, yes, that's what he's going to do. He's going to ditch his wife, Vashti, and he's going to get himself a new queen, a new queen of the Persian empire. It turns out that the girl he chooses is a Jewish girl, Now he doesn't know she's Jewish, he just knows there's something very special about her. Esther is chosen from amongst the 50 million um, of of his empire, and she's got to be special. I mean, consider it, he's likely had hundreds, probably thousands of women paraded before him. And, I mean, after a while, I mean, they all got to kind of look alike. They're all beautiful women, but there's something about Esther that stands out amongst all these women. There's something, it's there's not, just, not just an exterior beauty, there's something in the interior. There's something inside of her that attracts King Xerxes. And we get to chapter 3, and it tells a story about how they prepared Esther. She had a year of beauty treatments um, every woman's dream. Gloria, wouldn't you just love that? A year of beauty treatments and just just be pampered. and uh, And so that's what happened. And then by the end of chapter 3, Esther is installed as the new queen of the Persian empire. And then we get to chapter 4. And immediately in chapter 4, an enemy of the Jewish people emerges. Now, this this enemy, his name is Haman. Haman is one of the top officials in Xerxes' government. And he has really pleased the king. In fact, he's pleased the king so much that the king wants to honor him somehow. And so the way that King Xerxes honors Haman is by decreeing that everybody should bow down to him whenever he goes by. And so Haman is in his glory. He just loves this. This is all this recognition, this fame. I mean, he's got the fortune. Now he's got fame, and and everybody's bowing down, except one guy. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai stands remrod straight. He's not bowing down to anybody. Everybody else, are bowing down, they're just scraping the ground and licking his boots. But Mordecai is having none of it. He's not bowing for anybody. You see, Mordecai is Jewish. Mordecai does not bow down to anyone except to his own God. Now, let me just give you a bit of background to Mordecai. Mordecai is, in fact, Esther's cousin, And Esther was an orphan at a young age, and so it was actually her cousin Mordecai that raised her and cared for her. And Mordecai, even though he knows that his cousin is the queen of Persia and actually is putting himself and his queen in jeopardy, he refuses to bow down to Haman. He refuses to be assimilated into the culture. He refuses to do what everybody else is doing. Now, some of us, when we read that, we look at that, and we think, Mordecai, why do you have to be difficult? Why can't you just blend in? Don't make a big deal out of it. Do you have to really make a big issue out of this? Just, can't you just, just go along with it. Don't, don't cause ripples. Don't ruffle anybody's feathers. Just go along with it. Just Relax. And, you know, if you bow down, just cross your fingers, it doesn't mean... How many know when you cross your fingers, it doesn't mean anything, right? Just, just bow down and cross your fingers and, and behind your back, and, and, every, and we'll, everybody will know that it's, it's not real. Mordecai refuses. He will not bow down. And this sets in motion a plot of revenge unlike anything that you have ever seen or heard of before. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to see something. I want you to see that God's people have an enemy. And contrary to what you may think, our main enemy, or Mordecai's main enemy, wasn't in fact Haman. It's the one who's behind Haman. What unfolds before Esther, the queen of Persia, is in fact the ancient agenda of Satan himself. The agenda that was first rolled out in the Garden of Eden. What does Satan want to do? He wants to destroy God's people. He wants to rule over God's people. He wants the power that God originally gave to Adam and Eve. And you know the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve actually were, they failed the test. They gave in to the temptation of Satan. Satan wrestled control of this world from the hands of Adam and Eve, and he got what he wanted. He got the power, but he wanted to do more than that. He wanted to actually destroy God's people. Now, I want you to recognize something. The very first people of God are, in fact, Adam and Eve. These are the very first people of God, but after the fall, God has to appoint a brand new people to be his people we sometimes call them the chosen people and these are the in fact the people or the children of Abraham satan has done everything in his power over the centuries to try to destroy god's people and in the old testament it's the jewish people he has ha- remember pharaoh pharaoh tries to kill all the first all the baby boys in egypt Uh, We see that there's a pattern that grows here, and it happens throughout the Jewish history, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and then after New Testament times. But it's not just the Jewish people that Satan wants to destroy. It's Christians, because Christians are also God's people. How many know today, if you are a Christian, you are God's people? If you are a Christian today, I want you to say with me, I am God's people. Ready? One, two, three... Fantastic. We got a lot of God's people here today. Well, guess what God's people, you have an enemy. And his name is Satan, and he's doing everything in his power to destroy you, to destroy your family, to destroy your life. Now, this should not surprise any one of us. In fact, here's what Peter says. He says, "Stay alert." Now, Peter is not just saying this just for the fun of it. He's speaking a warning to everybody who calls himself or herself a Christian. He says, stay alert. Watch out for whom? For your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Did you know that Satan was your great enemy? When we think of Satan, we think of him as the enemy, as the bad guy, as the adversary, as the accuser of the brethren. These are all names for Satan. We sometimes call him the deceiver. That We call him the father of lies. But Peter calls him your great enemy. Satan, Chris, is your great enemy as much as he's my great enemy. And he's your great enemy. And he's doing everything in his power to destroy you, to destroy your marriage, to destroy your family, to destroy your life. In fact, Jesus tells us this, doesn't he, in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief, that's Satan, he comes to what? Rob, kill, and destroy. He's a sneaky devil. He's doing everything in his power to destroy you. So Peter says, you got to stay alert. Christians, can I just remind you today? You have to stay alert. You have an enemy who wants to destroy you. Now, I didn't say you have to be afraid. I I didn't say you have to be scared and terrified and chew your nails off. You just need to be alert. You need to be aware that there's an enemy that wants to destroy you as much as he wanted to destroy Mordecai. Satan is doing everything in his power to destroy God's people. People, there is a war on. Do you understand that? There is a war raging even now. And I'm gonna tell you, Satan's great strategy is to assimilate you and me into the culture. Satan wants us to join into the culture and then he'll leave us alone. It seems simple enough, right? Now, if Mordecai would have just joined in, if we would have stopped being so so difficult and so stubborn and so Jewish, if you could just stop being so stop being such a God's People, stop being so scrupulous, Mordecai. Calm down. Don't be so religious. Keep your religion for Sunday. Mordecai says, "No way. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not budging on my on my convictions. I don't care what day of the week it is. I'm not assimilating. I am not joining in. I'm not going to become like everybody else." in the culture. That's what he's saying. I want you to know something. Satan really works hard on young people. He works hard on all of us, but he really works on young people because young people have not yet got a lot of experience with life. In many cases, they haven't got, they haven't got their roots in yet. They haven't really been grounded for some of them. And they're really at risk. He's doing everything in his power, especially working on young people to make them assimilate into the culture. So there's no difference between them and the people that they go to school with, the people they hang out with, the people that they go to parties with. Look it. As long as we're doing what everyone else is doing, Satan doesn't care what you believe. So Pastor, on I've got I'm orthodox in my belief. I've got I can say I can quote scripture verses to you, I can say the Apostles' Creed. I know my theology, I've read all of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. I am solid. And Saint says, <laughs> Great, keep up the good work. He doesn't care what you believe, he doesn't really care what you believe. What he really cares about is what you do and how you live. And I would suggest this to you. I can tell what you believe by what you do. The Bible tells us what you believe is not enough. This is what James says. It says even Satan believes. Did you know that? Satan understands. Satan believes. Satan knows who God is. And he trembles. What matters is what you do and how you live your life. So Haman refuses to bow down. in fact that 's what it says in Esther chapter three, verses two to four. But Mordecai refused to bow down. He refused to fit into the culture, He refused, he refused to cooperate. He refused to show Haman respect. So the officials spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate mordecai 's conduct since Mordecai had told them. He was a Jew. Now, I'm pointing that out because he was a Jew. I I want you to see something here, folks. What's at stake is actually the name of God. Mordecai knew that if he bowed down, it's not just his, his own reputation that's on the line. He knew that it was the reputation of his God that was on the line. Now, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. Because the Bible is clear that the reason you and I were created is to bring glory to God, and secondly, to enjoy God forever. We call that the very first lines of the Westminster Confession written 400 years ago. You and I were created to bring glory to God, and you and I were created to enjoy God. Mordecai knew that if he bowed down to Haman, what would happen now is that he would be compromising and he would not be bringing glory to God. He would be bringing glory to Haman and all that Haman represented. Isn't it interesting? What does Satan want Jesus to do in the great temptation of the wilderness? He wants Jesus to bow down. Mordecai won't bow down. I'm not doing it. I want you to know something here. God's people need to remain distinct in this culture. Everybody needs to know that you are a believer, not based on just what comes out of your mouth, but on how you live your life. So let me ask you that question. Based on how you live your life, what will people say about you? Will they say, I know he's a Christian. He says he's a Christian, but I don't believe it. Here's the thing that I've discovered. I love real people. I love people who are just real. Either you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. But none of this lukewarm, in-between kind of stuff. In fact, Jesus says he hates that. He wants to spit you out of his mouth. That's what it says in Revelation, doesn't it? I'm going to spit you out out of my mouth, you who are lukewarm. Make up your mind. Are you in or are you out? Are you a believer or are you not a believer? Well, Mordecai is a believer, and he is on fire, man. He is not budging on his convictions. He is not blending into his culture. So here's what I want to say. I want to say something to you very, very difficult this morning. How many would like to hear something very difficult this morning? In fact, I'm going to get Gloria to come up here and take over the sermon. <laughs> See, I'm, no, I'll, I'll, I'll carry on, dear. Why? Why must we not blend into the culture? Why must we stand out as distinct, as different? Why must we be like Mordecai when everybody else is bowing down? Why must we remain erect, refusing to bow down? I'll tell you why. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here's why you have to stand out as a Christian. Now, look, I know not everybody here is a believer. I know that not everybody here is a Christian. Some people are almost Christian. Some people are looking into becoming a Christian. Some people are just here because you're forced to be here. Your mom made you come here. Your, your husband made you come here. Your wife made, I don't know. Maybe you just want to come and sing some great songs this morning. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are in fact a Christian, then you are distinct. And here's what Peter tells us about our distinction. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Peter says, for you are a chosen people. There's that word again, That the chosen. You are a chosen people. The very first people who are called chosen are the Jews. Now Peter is applying that to people who are Christians. In fact, Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. In other words, you are a nation within the nation. Before I call myself a Canadian, I call myself a Christian. I I call myself a Christian who lives in Canada. Do I love my country? Of course I love my country. But I love my Jesus, and I love my heavenly nation first and foremost. And then Peter says, in fact, you are God's very own possession. You belong to God. If you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian... Just, just follow along and listen, and, and, and hopefully it'll interest you. But if you are a Christian today, if you have given your heart to Jesus, if you've committed your life to Christ, then I'm going to tell you that how you live matters. Peter says, because you are a chosen people, because you're a royal priest, because you're a holy nation, because you are God's very special possession, he says, as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into the wonderful light. Did you hear that? As Christians, our job is to reveal to a broken and hurting world the goodness of God and also to bring light into this dark world. But if you are not standing out as distinct, you've got nothing to offer this world. My brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who are God's chosen people, understand your responsibility to stand out, to be distinct. Now you say, Pastor Al, what does that look like in our culture? Well, here's the part where it gets really dicey and difficult. Are you ready for this? No, really, are you? Christians do not use pornography. Now some of you sitting here, <laughs> duh. Yeah, of course, I know that. But guess what? There's a lot of Christians who do. There's a lot of people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ who think there's maybe nothing wrong with it. And there's some who would say, hey, they're using it alone, privately. It's their business. It's not harming anybody. It's not getting anybody pregnant. It's not hurting anybody. Other people, it's private, and so it doesn't matter. But I'm going to tell you right now, folks, if you actually read your Bible and know what it says, you're going to discover that Christians don't use pornography. In fact, Christians don't watch TV programs that are pornographic in nature. Sadly, our generation, when we talk about pornography, we think of hard, hardcore. But I'm going to tell you anything, anything that does not reflect God's very best when it comes to sexuality is pornography, pornea. Now, for some of you thinking, Phew, I passed that test. Others others of you thinking, well, I sure hope he doesn't find out. <laughs> the simple little test, my friends, is can Jesus sit there with you and watch what you're watching and look at what you're looking at? If the answer is no, then it's sin. If we're going to maintain our distinction as believers, then it's going to mean that we're going to have to take a very careful look at how we live our lives. And sadly, so many Christians are bowing down to Haman. We're bowing down to whatever comes along in our culture. Can I tell you something else? Christians don't swear. Did you hear that? Christians don't swear. And again, I point you to the scripture, read what it says about crude, crude joking. Doesn't even, I mean, the writer of the scriptures, I mean, they understand and they declare you can't take the Lord's name in vain, but they are assuming that you at least know that they're saying, don't even joke crudely. What kind of jokes do you listen to? What kind of jokes do you tell? Christians don't tell bad jokes. Would Jesus tell the joke that you're telling? Would Jesus listen to the jokes that you're listening to? Here's what. Christians don't have premarital sex. It's not not permitted by God. Now, there's a reason for it. It's not because God wants to be some kind of a cosmic killjoy. He wants to rob you of your happiness and your joy and fun. It's because he knows that you can't handle it outside of the commitment and the vows made in marriage. Now look at it, I'm not the one that's coming up with this stuff. I'm not the one that making these rules. This is all in the Bible. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And not only do you not engage in premarital sex, you don't deviate from God's standard for sexuality. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, then just listen to the lecture. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you put your faith in him, then you need to understand you do not bow down to what our culture says you need to do. Here's something else. Christians don't go and get drunk. Well, You can hear a pin drop in here. Christians don't go and get drunk. Now, I always say nobody goes to hell for having a beer or a glass of wine, but I'm going to tell you this. You do if you're, if you're a drunkard. In fact, the Bible clearly says that drunkards do not inherit the eternal life. They do not inherit heaven. You do not go to heaven if you're a drunkard. You say, well, Pastor Allen, what's the answer? That's something I struggle with. Well, here's the good news. Anybody who comes to Jesus Christ and confess their sin to Jesus, Jesus will set you free. He'll set you on the course of happiness. Remember what I said. Jesus said, the thief comes to rob and kill and destroy. I've seen too many people's lives ruined by drugs and alcohol. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, richest, most abundant, most blessed. Again, I'm talking to Christians. I'm not judging and condemning anybody, but those of you who are Christians today, you need to understand the standard by which you and I are called to live. And as my dad always said, it's for your own good. That's exactly what our Father in heaven is saying to you. It's for your own good. I've given you these instructions. I've given you this guidance. I've given you this wisdom for your own good. Tell the person beside you, it's for your own good. Yeah. What'd they say? Look at this. Look at this. Look it. James says, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. If you're going to be a friend of God, then you've got to make up your mind. Am I going to bow down to Haman? Am I going to adopt? Am I going to embrace my culture and the standards of my culture? Or am I going to make up my mind to do what God wants me to do? Remember, you have the name of God on you. You call yourself a Christian, a Christian. That's what Christian means. It's somebody who belongs to Christ. And we're called to live a certain way. I'm going to tell you, folks, Satan wants to do everything in his power to destroy you. And our our culture is going to lead you as far away from God as possible. That's why you need to question everything that your culture tells you to do. You need to ask yourself the question, how does Jesus want me to live in this life? Because Satan's working overtime to destroy the church and destroy every Christian here by erasing the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. How are you different? Remember what I said, what, actually what Peter said. He said, your job, my job, as people who are called the chosen ones, God's, God's special possession... Our job is to go and bring the light to the darkness to show people that God is good. God is good. All the time. Do people know that about the, about the God that you say you serve? Like, let's not be, be naive people. There is a big war on right now, and I'm going to say that by the looks of it, Satan's winning that war in North America. Satan wants to destroy you, wants to destroy God's people. Now, look, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be fearful. Because the Bible's clear that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But you need to be wise to Satan's schemes. So (laughs) Satan's working overtime in Haman's life, and Haman is so mad that Mordecai refuses to bow down. Have you ever noticed how the world hates it when we don't do what they do? How many times I've been at functions where everybody's knocking them back. <coughs> and they say, "And what are you drinking? I'm, I'm just having a Coke. I'm just having a, a water. Why? You had to drink water here. Why not? Last time I checked, it's a free world. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how upset people get if you're not knocking them back like they are? Why do they care what I'm drinking? But everybody, did you see he's drinking, he's drinking a Coke? Can you believe that? But party is this. I've got to drink water to party. (laughs) Haman's furious. He doesn't like it. So he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to just destroy Mordecai. I'm going to destroy all the Jews. Now, I'd say that's a bit disproportionate, wouldn't you? (laughs) Mordecai won't bow down, and so his... So Haman's uh, solution is let's destroy all the Jews. We'll just destroy Mordecai. We'll go throughout all 50 million Persians in the Persian Empire and we'll find all the Jews and kill them all. Haman cooks up a plan to destroy all the Jews and he comes and he presents it to King Xerxes. And we read in Esther chapter 3, verse 8, there's a certain race, O King Xerxes, a certain race of people. Now, I I highlighted that because I want you to see something. Haman recognizes that they are a special race. They are a nation within a nation. Folks, listen, as Christians, you are a nation within the nation of Canada. We stand out as distinct. There's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Look at this. This is the language used of Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Folks, that's also the language we use of Christians. We're people who keep ourselves separate from everyone else because we think we're better than everybody else? Absolutely not. If anything, we recognize that we are God's special possession, a special treasure, and how we live our life matters. We are not like everybody else. If you're a Christian today, you are not like everybody else, you are distinct. You're a holy people, God's special possession. Now watch this. Their laws are different from these or those of of any other people. And so, therefore, we need to kill them all. And King Xerxes says, sounds like a great idea. Write out the law. I'll put my stamp of approval. He takes a signet ring. He seals the law. And what neither Haman nor King Xerxes know is that they have just sealed the death warrant of the queen of the Persian Empire. They don't know she's Jewish. Wow. Mordecai is horrified. He hears about this. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He starts to pray. He's distressed out of his mind, as you can imagine, because he's feeling it's my fault. I'm the one responsible for the destruction of all the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire. Now, Mordecai, if you had just cooperated, if you just bowed down, if you hadn't been so difficult and so so religious and so Jewish, if you would just, just bowed down, Satan always whispers that in your ear. Just, just fit in. Just be quiet. Don't say anything. Don't let anybody know. Just... Just go with the flow. Mordecai goes to Esther and tells her of what's about to happen. And Mordecai then reminds Esther that she is in a very special position. We talked about last, that last week. She has been divinely positioned for this time. I want the Spirit of God to speak to you right now because I want you to know something. Where you are right now, the job you have, the place that you live, the church that you attend, the friends that you have, God has divinely positioned you to make a difference wherever you are. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, if you believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, if God knows best, then you need to know that where you are in your life right now is where God wants you to be, and God wants to use you where you are, just the way he wanted to use Esther. Then it's a game-changer. Now, if Esther's instincts are to actually remain silent, don't say anything, She's going to do. She wants to do what Mordecai should have done—just keep his mouth shut. She's thinking that she could spare herself and continue to enjoy the ease and the comfort of the palace. There's something she's overlooking. It's called the law of the Medes and the Persians. When the king puts his signet ring to the law, not even the king can overrule that law. And so that's why Mordecai says to Esther, "Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, that you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. Don't think that for a minute." And I'm going to say this to you today. Don't think for a moment that you can keep your mouth shut f- forever. The day is coming when you are going to have to take a stand where you're going to have to speak up and make it clear to your friends, your family, the people you work with, that you belong to Jesus. It's either that or you are rejecting Christ altogether. Mordecai is speaking to us right now, isn't he? You can only blend in with a culture for so long until, as Peter says, Satan has devoured you. That's why he says, stay alert, be on guard, because Satan is trying to assimilate you into this culture. And once you're assimilated and doing what everybody else does, then you are no longer identified as God's people. That's why Mordecai couldn't bow down. And so Mordecai says to Esther, hey, Esther, you think it's, Coincidence that you are the queen of Pers right now? Don't you believe that you're here for a reason? Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Esther, you are in a position now where you can make a difference. Let me ask you a question, folks. Where are you right now in your life, and what difference does God want you to make? in the lives of the people that you fellowship with, people you live with, the neighborhood you're in, the people you work shoulder to shoulder with. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. What privileged position do you enjoy? What authority, what power, what influence do you have that God can use for his glory and honor? I want to close with this. William Wilberforce was a politician in the late 1700s. He was a Christian man, and he saw the great plight of slaves, Africans stolen from their their countries off the continent of Africa and sold into slavery into the various countries of the British Empire. And as a Christian, it bothered him greatly, and he thought to himself, I am in the parliament. I'm in a place where I can influence my nation. I am in a place where I can make a difference. And so what Wilberforce does is he begins to petition, and he begins to debate, and he begins to challenge and everybody's fed up listening to him. And this goes on for not just years, it goes on for decades. And everybody's like, oh, it's Wilberforce again. Shut up and sit down, Wilberforce. We've had enough about you and your anti slavery. But he won't give up because he knows that he is in parliament for such a time as this. And he keeps fighting and fighting. And He's, bec- he's becoming an old man now. He's got a stoop and his shoulders are sagging. And everybody looks at him as... A man tired and worn out and wondered, what, what good did this man do? Look, he spent his whole life going on and on and on about slavery. And he's, he's tired and worn out. And yet, if you looked at him and asked him about slavery, he would straighten up, the fire in his eyes, and he'd begin to tell you all the reasons why slavery is evil and wicked and has no place in a country, in a nation that calls itself Christian. And he fought and he fought and he fought because he was in Parliament for such a time as this. And finally, almost as if he'd worn out the nation and particularly the politicians in Parliament, they agreed to pass the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. Wilberforce sat there, tears streaming down his cheeks. Looked to the heavens and thanked God. His life was not in vain. He made a difference. He said, I know I'm here for such a time as this. An amazing thing, folks, is three days later he died. After he did the work that God called him to do. Wilbur Forrest is one of my great heroes, a great Christian man, who didn't just believe that slavery needed to come to it, an and he did something about it. He refused to bow down to popular opinion. He refused to bow down when everybody was ridiculing him, laughing at him, mocking him, making fun of him. He could have been a respected politician. He could have been loved by all. But you see, he wasn't looking for the favor of any politician, any king, any queen, any prime minister. He was looking only for one person's approval, and that was the approval of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? God, as we stand here right now, we recognize that we are, in fact, the army of God. We don't fight with weapons and guns. We fight with a spiritual armor, with a spiritual warfare. You've called us, Lord, to go and bring light, to tell people about the goodness of God. You've called us to go and bring light into our dark world. And God, we pray right now that you would just touch the hearts of every believer, every Christian in this house. Fill them, oh God, with a conviction. That they need to rise up and do the work that God has called them to do for such a time as this. God, you have a plan for every one of us and we want to we sign up for duty. We want to do exactly what you've called us to do for your great namesake. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Amen. Tell the person beside you, don't go bow down.